This is a non-promotional podcast intended for UK health professionals, organised and funded by Bayer. Hello, I'm Peter Kackett, and I've teamed up with Bayer to bring to you this podcast, which we have called Eye on the Horizon. In this series, I'll be interviewing doctors and scientists who I think have a really interesting story to tell. And I'm hoping that you will find our discussions thought-provoking as well and make you pause and reflect as you move forward with your own journeys through life. So welcome to this third episode in the Iron Horizon podcast series, generally sponsored by Bayer. And in this next episode, I'm very excited because I've travelled all the way to San Francisco for the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting, where my next guest, I've got a bit of a clue as to who I'm interviewing. I've got my aviator shades here because it's a very sunny morning here in San Francisco. And you may have already uh, heard of this gentleman. Uh, It's Professor Steve Shalhorn, who has had two high-flying careers, not one, but two. In his first career, he was a fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. Not only that, but he went to Top Gun uh, school for further training, and he also became a Top Gun instructor at Miramar. And whilst he was an instructor there, he met the scriptwriter Jack Epps for the Top Gun movie, and a lot of what he told him ended up as plot of the movie. In his second career, he then went on to study medicine, uh, became uh, trained in ophthalmology, and then became a professor of corneal surgery. And he then became involved in the FDA trials uh, refractive surgery. He uh, pioneered the uh, refractive surgery uh, program for the Department of Defense and also instructed NASA in refractive astronauts. So two amazing careers. Welcome to the podcast here, Steve. I'm very excited to finally meet you. Um, And uh, I thought that we'd start off by setting the scene, uh, because I think you went down to Pensacola in Florida for recruitment for the U.S. Navy. And obviously, the first question everyone wants to ask you is, what's it like to fly a fighter aircraft? And I think to set the scene, can you describe when you first flew out of San Diego to San Clemente Island in your first flight in F-14 and describe the experience of flying an F-14 fighter jet? Hey, thanks, Peter. You know, okay. uh, obviously, thanks for having me. Um, that that intro. So this is after you get trained, after you get winged, after you've you know got hundreds of hours uh, of training. And the first flight you take in the F fourteen, of course, the the training was down at Miramar. It was at yeah. Miramar. And the there's no stick in the back. It's two seat, but there's no stick in the back. Yeah. Uh, the, the person in the back seat is a radar operator. But they put the very first flight you have, they put an instructor pilot in the back seat. And, uh, and, of course, you've been thoroughly trained, yeah. but the very first flight you take in the F-14, it's just, it's the first airplane that I flew with an afterburner, with yeah. capability, that kind of stuff. So you take off, you fly the F-14, and by the way, it's, it's very easy to fly. Yeah. So everybody asks, well, how hard is it to fly? It's actually, it's actually really easy to fly yeah. uh, an F-14 or, or any of these fighter jets, whatever. Yeah. Anyways, the, the, what you do is you fly out, and there's an island off the coast of uh, Southern California, San Clemente Island. And it's a na- basically a Navy island. Like yeah. They use it for a variety of different things. And um, it's a long, kind of narrow. There's cliffs yeah. uh, on the east side. And so you get below the cliffs. You're flying kind of over the ocean, but below the cliff level. Uh, and you're going about 500 knots, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, maybe 560 or 570 miles an hour. Yeah. And you engage full afterburn. Yeah. So once you engage afterburner, the, there's an enormous kick of thrust, 
and then you pull the nose straight up. You just go straight up, so you're kind of sitting back. And then 45 seconds later, you top out at 45,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And on the way up, you break the speed of sound. Yeah. So you have this incredible sensation that you're just taking off, basically, yeah. and you kind of are. And you realize, you know, the horizon, as you look at the horizon, yeah. the horizon, like a flat horizon. And so, Grad, you're taking out, you're flying vertical so fast that you see this curve kind of going and the sky is just darkening mm -hmm. as you go up again yeah. so it's uh it's an incredible yeah. it was absolutely incredible it's just an eye-opener yeah experience so these uh these afterburners though they turn the jet into a rocket essentially is that right yeah so normal jet engine uh develops uh amount of power but sometimes you need and they actually call it thrust augmentation yeah so we call it collectively aftermarket, but it's yeah. thrust augmentation. And that's where in the back of the engine, uh, they basically, it just dumps fuel very specifically, and it turns this jet motor essentially into a rocket mm -hmm. motor, right? Yeah. A rocket motor. The amount of thrust that it produces is uh, astronomically increased. Yeah. So you say, that's great. There's a big downside to that, though. Yeah. And that is the fuel consumption goes up astronomically high too. Mm -hmm. So uh, here's an example. So an F-14. An F-14 can stay airborne, uh, can fly thousands of miles, can stay airborne for four plus hours. Yeah. In full afterburner, it's, that's four minutes worth of fuel. Yeah. Right. Wow. So the, so you have to, you look at the fuel gauge, it just drops. So this, this increase, great increase of thrust and, and that thrust equates yeah. to you know, fun and what you can do and how fast right. you can go and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, that is countered by how much fuel you have, and yeah. it's not good if you run out of fuel when you're flying. That's right. Yeah, bad. That's a bad. That's right. Yeah. So it's not all about obviously flying the aircraft; it's landing the aircraft. Now you're with the U.S. Navy, and um, it looks really easy in the movies and on TV uh, uh, clips landing on an aircraft carrier. But apparently, it's not that easy. Uh, so can you describe aircraft aviation and what it's like landing on an aircraft carrier? Because well. You know, yeah, I would say um, the landing on an aircraft carrier is what uh, distinguishes a naval aviator, Navy pilot, from all other kind of basically what we think is all other pilots, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that requires a special skill. And I think part of the skill is the aviation skill, and the other part is yeah. the kind of the mental skill. Yeah. Here's an example. Um, well, a personal example. So the first time you land an aircraft carrier, you're in training. It's yeah. before you get your wings. So yeah. getting your wings is kind of like uh, in in aviation. is is sort of like graduate from medical school. Yeah. It's like you've done it. You're now an MD. Yeah. Like you've made it. Uh, yeah. You actually kind of only first step. Yeah. Now you need to get trained in being an ophthalmologist. Right? Yeah. And and then. Well, now after you uh, go through ophthalmology, you need to get trained, further trained in whatever, yeah. retina or whatever it is. So, yeah. so before getting wings, before you get your wings in, in flight training for the Navy, uh, you have to land an aircraft carrier. Uh, actually, uh, with, uh, back then it was a couple different aircraft. But the very first time, um, they train you. They train you really diligently, a lot, repetitively, days and days, weeks and, and months. And you, you land on, uh, obviously, uh, just on a regular runway that's kind of set up yeah. like a carrier. And there's certain cues, visual cues that are very important to land. You do that at night mm -hmm. so that you don't have really the, the visual sensation. You have visual sensation more about being over the water, yeah. but it's really not, 
It's as good as they can make it. Yeah. But you train, you train, you get every pass critically graded. And so finally they say, the instructors say, you're ready. Mm -hmm. You are ready to go. So uh, you fly out. So here's my experience. So here's the experience I have. Yeah. Plenty. So you're, uh, there's nobody in the backseat. Uh, so you're solo. But there's a lead pilot who's an instructor. Yeah. And he's taking you out to the aircraft carrier. Right? Mm -hmm. So you take off, fly out. You get uh, down low. Once, you, once you're ready, you get you low. You're like 600 feet over the water. Um, and it's kind of bouncy. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of bouncy. You're, everything is kind of bouncy. And all of a sudden, you look down, you're flying uh, formation on the lead aircraft. And then you see this this little tiny thing down there. And it's yeah. the aircraft carrier. Right? And, of course, you're going maybe three or 400 miles an hour. So it kind of passes by real quick. The lead breaks off yeah. and lands. you got to time it. You break off. You turn around. You land. Yeah. So you turn around, you know, you're lining up in the aircraft carrier. And then I just said, this is, this is insane. This is crazy. Uh, the experience was like, um, you're driving your car at 120 miles an hour at a brick wall. Like I'm driving <laughs> at this brick wall. This is like, this is not good, yeah. right? This yeah. is not good. I'm driving this brick wall. And it's yeah. a matter of seconds. I'm going to hit this brick wall because you're, you're just coming at this carrier. And so, of course, the train takes over. Right. Yeah. Train takes over and you're you're flying. So once you land, there's a tail hook that grabs a wire, yeah. and that just instantly stops you in a second or so. It stops you. Once you land, you have to raise the the tail hook. You have to yeah. taxi off so the person behind you can land. And so I was kind of my you know I'm I'm not really think I'm thinking on a different level I guess. So uh, I'm thinking I'm just this is not good. I'm just going to die. And then all of a sudden. You know, uh, all of a sudden I'm on the carrier, but yeah. I, I'm not appreciating that. All of a sudden, in my headset, I hear Buckeye two one two throttle back. It's the guy's screaming throttle back because you're you you go to full power. If you don't yeah. throttle back, the wires grab you. You're just yeah. not going to be able to let go. You got to throttle back. So Buckeye two one two throttle back. Uh, Buckeye two one two, please throttle back. And so I go to myself, I'm thinking Buckeye two one two should really throttle back. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? Who's that? Yeah. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the experience. It was yeah. just a wild experience. Uh, so it speaks to the training. Sure. So then uh, I think in the late 70s, you said you were stationed on the USS Ranger aircraft carrier off of in the Indian Ocean, off of Iran. And then you get the call up for Top Gun School. And that was a pretty big deal. Did, can you describe that call up, which you got to Top Gun School, on how big a deal it was to be selected? Yeah, it's a very big deal. So in every F-14 squadron, they so would select uh, one crew, yeah. front seat uh, and the uh, back seat, to go through the Topkin course as a student. So that's a big honor. Uh, one, each squadron may, may send one crew every other year, or yeah. every third year or whatever. So um, it's, you know, it's a very big honor to go through the course. It's kind of yeah. like getting accepted. You just got accepted to go to Harvard Medical yeah. School. Right? Yeah. That's you know that's awesome. That's great. That's yeah. perfect. So, so I, uh, I was selected to go to the Top Gun course as a student. Yeah, big honor. Yeah, and then and then of course it was um, uh, absolutely incredible to go through the then as a Training. student. Yeah, uh, to get trained in that. Yeah. So and after that you go back to the aircraft carrier, wondering what to do next, and you get to talk up to be an instructor. That must be. Better than half of medical school then. Yeah, so that was so I uh, went through the Topkin course as a student. It's yeah. phenomenal yeah. training, uh, graduate level training. Uh, went back to my F-14 squadron, and I was yeah. in my F-14 squadron for another tour. 
Yeah. And uh, and then I actually was in the Indian Ocean. Yeah. We were off the coast, you know, uh, Indian Ocean, and uh, got a message. And back then it was they had these messages that I was selected to be a top gun instructor. So yeah. That was I. That that was uh, an incredible. Yeah. That's absolutely. It was absolutely yeah. incredible. It was a sentinel moment. Yeah. And I think you said that when you were a top gun instructor, you actually did meet the scriptwriter Jack Epps. And say how that came about. How did you meet the scriptwriter at Miramar whilst you're an instructor there? Yeah. So um, there are about twelve top gun instructors, and uh, about once a month or so. This is again. This is back in the day. Uh, about once a month, some dignitary would come out to top yeah. gun, and <clears throat> and they would and the dignitary like a senator or somebody. Yeah somebody of significance whatever. Yeah. and uh, and we, one of the instructors was kind of essentially assigned to chaperone that person around. yeah and uh, we called them um, visiting firemen because yeah. it was like a fire drill yeah. all of a sudden you know some senator Walter Cronkite or whoever yeah. somebody's going to show up yeah. right yeah a top gun so you know it's a it's a little bit of a fire drill I guess that's right and so um, it was we called it the instructors called it uh, your turn in the barrel. Yeah. Right? That was, nobody really wanted to do that. They, they always preferred to fly, but you yeah. had to chaperone this person around. So, yeah. um, it was, uh, uh, you know, I, it was my turn in the barrel. Yeah. So I was assigned to, and I had no idea about the movie, but some script writer yeah. I was writing some script for something. I, we have no idea, but I got a chaperone, yeah. uh, this, this guy around. And so, yeah. um, so, you know, uh, the guy was Jack Epps and um, described some of the things that happened in my F-14 squadron, yeah. you know, years prior. That's right. Uh, and and so uh, so they had it, spent the day with them, yeah. didn't think of it. They ended up filming the movie uh, after I left. I left Top Gun and I went to medical school. Yeah. And so they filmed it uh, when I was in medical school. Yeah. So I, I, um, obviously Top Gun turned out to be, and it's been voted recently, the... Uh, Best movie of all time by one survey. Um, very popular movie. Uh, for this next part of the podcast, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the plot for the movie. But if you haven't seen it after 35 years since it's released, you really should have done by now. Uh, so a fact or fiction, then. A few fact or fictions for this part of the podcast. Um, in the first uh, opening scene of the movie, we see Maverick and Cougar taking off from the aircraft carrier to see off a couple of hostile MiG-28s coming into land... Cougar loses his nerve. He has to follow Maverick's wing into the aircraft carrier. He then hands in his wings, and it's, and it's uh, Maverick gets called up for Top Gun School. Fact or fiction? That is that's pretty factual. Yeah, um, and that happens. That happened in my squadron actually, mm-hmm. where there was a, a pilot uh, landing in the aircraft is very stressful, especially yeah. at night. So I, I mentioned briefly, you know, the mental aspect of it. Yeah. It's a really critical aspect. You have to be mentally very focused. Um, and you have to stay on that edge, yeah. you have to really be on that edge. And there was somebody, and this happens uh, occasionally, where uh, a pilot would say, you know, I just, I can't put up with, I can't do this. Yeah. I, I can't do this. I can't physically do this. Now, yeah. the, what's fictional is guiding him down or whatever, but yeah. that, that was uh, a bit of Hollywood in there. But, yeah. but there are pilots that just say, you know, I can no longer, I just can't handle the stress. Yeah. Um, next one, uh, we often see uh, Maverick buzzing the control tower during the movie and the officer in the control tower spilling his cup of coffee. Fact or fiction? Does That's that totally fiction. Yes. Yeah. Is, there's, uh, there is no way uh, that uh, that you would fly, a pilot yeah. would fly again if they did anything like that. So okay. it's, 
the you know the it's very professional. Yeah. So there's no way that would ever happen. So he would have been fired. Maverick would have been fired for he would not, causing a consultant. Yeah. yeah. That okay. would be the end of his yeah. career. Okay. Um, so uh, the next scene I want to talk about is Maverick and his co-pilot Goose uh, uh, in, in the back. They um, see off the MiG-28 and they go canopy to canopy and then later and they take a photo uh, of, of, the, of the event. And then at Top Gun School, they say to Charlie Blackwood, the a.k.a. Kelly McGillis, uh, they say that uh, her information is correct and you can pull negative 4G dive against MiG-28 and fly canopy canopy. True or false? That's totally false. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that pegs a meter on falseness, I yeah. guess. So that would never, anything like that would never happen. Uh, and uh, and you would never, uh, for a variety of reasons, can't be, can't be, would never happen, uh, yeah. whatever. And, uh, and the negative 4Gs, well, you would never pull... Uh, Okay. A human, I don't think a human can withstand <laughs> negative fortunes. Okay. So, yeah. And the last one before we move on to the next bit is the last scene is later on in the movie, um, I think Maverick and Iceman are chasing an A4 jet. Maverick uh, pulls uh, pulls out the way so Iceman can get a shot on. This is a training exercise. Uh, he goes into the jet wash. Uh, engine burns out. They go into flat spin. They have to parachute, eject and parachute out. Cougar hits, oh, sorry, um, Goose hits the canopy. Uh, and dies. True or false? Is that that is that is very true. That yeah. actually happened in my F-14 squadron. Okay, and it was a training exercise uh, that it was over what's called a tax range, where it's full telemetry, yeah. and uh, F-14 was chasing an A-4. Uh, yeah. Couldn't quite get the shots. Very high G, very dynamic. Uh, wingman uh, was overhead, um, and. And by the way, the rest of the squadron was watching this yeah. live in, yeah. a, in a trailer that had the digital presentation of it. I was watching it uh, live. Um, th- his wingman, who's way up ahead, says, you know, I can roll in for the shot. Uh, F-14 rolls off, catches, goes through the jet wake. Yeah. And, um, and because of the yaw of the airplane, it blanked out the, the outboard motor, okay. which went into a compressor stall. Okay. So a compressor stall is full afterburner, so enormous amount of thrust, and all of a sudden a, a compressor stall results in no thrust from that. Yeah, you're already the airplane was already yawing to the right. That motor on the right hand side burned out, no yeah. thrust. The other motor just drives it. What's called a flat spin. Okay, and we had known for a bit of time before this that the F-14 the flat spin was not recoverable. Yeah, right? once it gets into a flat spin, it's falling like a, a rock falling. You don't have enough airspace it's falling fast uh, to recover from it uh, so you have to eject the other thing we had known again for even a short amount of time was that the ejection sequence so in a, if you have to eject from the airplane f-14 yeah the first thing that happens the canopy goes then the guy in the back goes the guy in the front goes and that yeah. all happens in like a second or a second and a half so yeah. it's boom 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 yeah right, in that sequence but the, the f-14 flat spin is such that the aerodynamics the, the remember everything's falling and spinning. The canopy when it blows, it bobbles for an extra millisecond. Yeah, just a, enough because of the weird aerodynamics. It throws off the sequence. Yeah, so the guy in the back can actually hit the canopy. Mm-hmm. And so they had changed the um, our uh, procedures. If you get ever get into a flat spin, the guy in the back has to really initiate ejection. Yeah, because they're spinning so fast, the guy in the front is just thrown forward with yeah. enormous force. Guy in the back slows to center rotation, that he blows the canopy first. Has yeah. a big handle, blow the canopy, then eject, and that gives plenty of time. Yeah. Well, in the heat of the moment, you've got three seconds 
to live, right? Yeah. So he just ejects, forgets yeah. to do that. Yeah. He hits a candy. Um, and uh, it was not fatal. There was no issues with it. Um, well, there was some uh, some injury. Uh, it was out over the tax range of, uh, of uh, Arizona. Uh, they both uh, recover. Um, but part of that uh, was the guy had his uh, arms, really his shoulders dislocated. He couldn't have, uh, it had it happened with water, he couldn't have uh, inflated auto uh, done the uh, sorry not the inflation of his vest yeah and without an inflated vest you're over the water you can sink yeah that's right. you sink so it's a lucky escape yeah, yeah. so that was yeah. so that yeah. so essentially that was, was a, a true uh, yeah. event that made it yeah, yeah essentially that made it in yeah. now uh looking at fighter pilots i think you mentioned previously that the u.s navy obviously is very expensive to train you as a pilot they want you to be the best and you said they looked into all the factors uh, of what makes someone the top, best of the best pilot. And uh, just describe that study and what it showed. Yeah, so the, it's, uh, as you said, it's very expensive training. Yeah. And so they were looking at what factors, what can we do up front to maybe select uh, successful pilots, yeah. uh, Navy pilots. Uh, and this is F-14. So they went to um, uh, Norfolk. They went to uh, actually Oceana in Virginia. Yeah where the F-14s on the East Coast were, and they did a study, and this is in the 80s, very comprehensive study They looked at factors that could be associated with a, a more a successful F-14 pilot. Yeah. And they looked at um, a whole bunch of different things. Um, the, the How long your arm is. Yeah. Uh, you know, the uh, how the, your head circumference. Yeah. Those yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, things yeah. are a lot of weird stuff. Um, but they looked at a lot of vision what you stuff. For breakfast, too. yeah, 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 yeah. For breakfast. yeah. personality traits, yeah. Yeah. personality traits, uh, a lot of vision things, dynamic acuity, uh, yeah. dynamic visual acuity, contrast sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. And they came up with one thing, yeah, one thing, and that was simple uncorrected visual acuity. Wow, uncorrected visual acuity after all these factors. And people think, well, maybe the people that drive you know fast cars that'll make. No, that yeah. had no significance. I didn't drive a fast car. Yeah. Um, personality traits didn't matter. Yeah. Uncorrected acuity. Yeah. So pilots that were just 2020 uncorrected mm -hmm. uh, were not nearly as capable or in that study as pilots who were 2016 yeah. uncorrected, 2012 or even 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And that obviously, I guess, looking into it makes a difference if you're in a dogfight, I guess, because you know what's going on. That's why the Better than the best vision. Is that right? Yeah. I would say vision is the is an absolutely critical skill. Yeah. And, and in a dogfight, uh, it's absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh, the dynamic uh, nature of it, the the fine visual acuity is required. Yeah. So absolutely critical skill. Being, or not skill, yeah. requirement. Being able to tell friend from foe, I guess, aircraft from the distance and, and trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's very dynamic. Looking at Seeing like um, if you can see the the flaps on the airplane that you're fighting against to know yeah. if they're down or up, yeah. Uh, to see how the what the turn rate of the airplane is that you're fighting, and and keep in mind that these aren't airplanes that are right next to each other, yeah. Like in the movies, or whatever. Yeah. Um, these airplanes are miles away uh, because yeah. it's, the airspeed is so fast. Yeah. Uh, that engagements, you know, once you pass an airplane, you're almost it, quickly several miles away from them, and you're joining yeah. miles away yeah. so seeing uh, is uh, just a critical skill and uh, if you lose sight yeah uh, you'll just you'll be shot down within a couple yeah. seconds yeah so it's really critical yeah absolutely critical yeah so moving on to the next 
career that you had uh, uh, going into medicine, went to medical school, and obviously uh, you chose ophthalmology, and I guess we both know ophthalmology is a good career, but I guess the vision thing had a lot to do with it because of how important it was as a pilot, and that's what attracted you to ophthalmology. I think, right? yeah, the yeah. vision, uh, I think that was one, how, how important, having lived how important vision was, yeah. whatever, uh, that was one. Um, but there's other uh, aspects that make ophthalmology such a great specialty, yeah. and I think um, a lot of people ask, um, so, you know, how do you, how does ophthalmology compare to being, you know, a pilot? And yeah. the answer is, they're actually got, they, they're actually kind of similar yeah. because you're dealing with, you know, technology, latest technology, right? Yeah. There's, there's investment in technology and ophthalmology. It's yeah. just phenomenal investment yeah. that, yeah. that uh, industry is making in ophthalmology to make it, uh, people's vision better. Yeah. So same thing uh, in where I was flying, you know, tactical aircraft. Well, there's a lot of investment in tactical aircraft. Back, back, the F, back then, the F-14 was the hottest airplane. Well, yeah. now you've got the F-35, yeah. F-18, F-22. Yeah. Same thing. Latest technology. You're using yeah. it. You're employing it yeah. uh, for a mission, for do, to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, again, there's a lot in similar between the two. Yeah. So it's a was... Pretty natural fit. Yeah. And you got involved in the FDA refractive surgery trials. Uh, and and uh, how did that come about? Was that in the part of the world you were working at the time? And is that something you were attracted to, refractive surgery? So the uh, about the time I was going through a training, they had uh, a new technology out uh, called the Exmer laser. Yeah. Exmer laser. So that was a new technology that could uh, potentially be used to correct refractive error. Yeah. And, of course, it was, as we know, it's PRK. And so uh, I remember looking at that, saying this could be very useful, yeah. right, for people that have to go into harm's way, yeah, because vision is so important. This could be very, very useful. So um, that was kind of the the drive to take a look at it. We really need to evaluate this, yeah. And the real what really made this happen though was in talking to people that were obviously in the Navy at the time, um, the Navy SEALs, yeah. the, the Navy SEALs. So they had, their biomedical director was actually another ophthalmologist right. who I knew, yeah. uh, a guy named Frank Butler. He said, this is really, really uh, potentially great technology, especially for Navy SEALs. Yeah. Now, I thought, well, it'd be great for Navy pilots, but the Navy has, holds its vision standards, you know, uh, very, very uh, tightly. Yeah. Right? So uh, it would take a long time, a lot of studies to, to go to, uh, to get anything approved or whatever for Naval Aviation, but Navy SEALs. They have a really acute need for vision. Yeah, right? yeah. These these folks, you know, the the different environments they traverse, uh, the the needs they can't, they really can't wear glasses, they can't wear contact lenses. The, so uh, he set out tasking to look at uh, refractive surgery back yeah. in PRK, and then and then he did something which um, makes anything work, makes the world work, and that yeah. is he provided funding. Yeah, right? that's so a cool thing. Once yeah. you provide the funding, so so the very first study. Uh, I directed the very first study, and mm-hmm. it was in San Diego, the Navy Medical Center, San Diego, where we looked at PRK uh, as part of the FDA clinical trial because it wasn't approved. Yeah. Um, in particular, for use in you know in the Navy SEAL community. Yeah. So that was a very that was the inception of this group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, subsequently, with the positive results, you spearheaded the refractive surgery program for the. Department of Defense. So, just describe that program, what's happened to date, and and, and I guess why it's so important to frack the military. Yeah, yeah, it's it expanded. So it, it kind of gradually expanded 
out from that first study and then led to multiple, there were many, many studies were, that we conducted really at the Navy Medical Center San Diego that looked at different environmental factors, visual yeah. recovery, um, a contrast sensitivity, a, a variety of different factors. And eventually it just reached critical mass where, you know, the, the, uh, the community, uh, the operational community really, really was saying, we would really want this. Yeah. Uh, and so again, it was, uh, special, the special forces really helped drive this through. Yeah. And then it just became, it just grew that yeah. it was so successful doing that because listen, uh, laser vision correction works. It's very successful. Yeah, it's the the risk benefit ratio is is very good. It's not risk free, mm-hmm. um, but in the folks that have to send people into harm's way, they're used to dealing with risks. Yeah. There's pluses and minuses. What's the plus? What's the minus? And that that risk analysis is so favorable to doing it because yeah. the benefit from again. I like to think of it as people like going to harm's way or first responders. There's yeah. so enormous benefit yeah. from them. And we had multiple stories come back after we started this program yeah. of the benefit. So it just expanded. So now it is, um, there are 20, over 20 laser centers in DOD around yeah. the world yeah. that are doing this for, to help, uh, really it's to help them do their job better. Yeah. So. I guess it's uh, so it makes practical things like wearing gas masks, I guess, uh, uh, a lot easier because if you don't have uh, the practice surgery, you have to have your prescription of the gas mask. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you can't wear contact lenses uh, in this gas, you know, in a, if you if there's a gas threat, you can't wear contact lenses with a gas mask because it'll absorb it. Uh, yeah. It's it's not good. So you put inserts inside. Yeah. So I we had multiple, multiple issues, uh, stories about this. And one, I remember this was in the the first desert war and there was a, a Marine Colonel, uh, who, uh, all of a sudden there, you know, it's the middle of the night and they have a, uh, a warning potential gas attack. Yeah. And that was a real threat back then. So yeah. thought, uh, so they have to immediately don, you know, gas mask and other things. And so in, in the heat of the moment or whatever, and the jumbled confusion, um, this guy puts on a, a mask, but it's the wrong mask. Okay. He puts yeah. on the mask of somebody who was a minus eight myope, which is obviously a very high level That's of right. sightedness. Yeah. And the, the, the Marine who was the minus eight put on his, which had like no prescription or whatever. So yeah. they're both, they were both disabled. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. both essentially casualties. Yeah. So they can't, you can't take off your mask because it's a real threat. That's right? right. It's a real threat. So they were essentially taken out of the fight. Yeah. So casualties. Yeah. So obviously this guy described this in a letter to me to say, yeah. I really would like refractive surgery yeah. for, and here's an example of why I would like it to help yeah. me do my job better. Yeah. And how many to date have has been through the program for the military? Um, they have done almost a million procedures wow. on active yeah. duty military personnel. Yeah. These, you know, the centers probably yeah. over a million now. And I guess it's not, it's turning your soldiers into better, better soldiers and, yeah, it's well. It's helping them do their job better and yeah. safer. And yeah. there's another the other side benefit. They have improved quality of life. Yeah. And people have undergone refractive surgery, LASIK, PRK, Smile. Uh, they very uniformly say, you know, the quality of my life, mm-hmm. and talk in terms of that. Yeah, the quality, the improvement, and the quality of their life. Yeah. So, and it wasn't just important practice surgery for Department of Defense, it was for NASA as well. Can you talk us 
why it was important for astronauts. You know, it, it, is it a problem wearing glasses and contact lenses in space as well? Yes. Yeah, so once this is years later, we were looking at a PRK and LASIK in, yeah. in aviators, uh, and so NASA was very interested and reached out to say, you know, Steve, you know, we've got problems with glass iconic lenses too, yeah. right, in space, and um, and they have, you know, if you think about it, uh, uh, glasses. So you wear glasses, but the glasses stay on our face, yeah. right, because of the. Partly because of the weight of the glasses, yeah. bridge of the nose, they come on. And if you stand on your head wearing a pair of glasses, you realize, well, they you know, they don't they stay there. Yeah, yeah. And so in space, wearing glasses like that, normal pair of glasses, they would float on your head. Mm-hmm. Well, you can get a prismatic effect, and there's other issues that deal with this optically. But if you had this, if you did, if you wear a pair of glasses and you did this for just a couple minutes, I mean, eventually you're just gonna you're gonna get dizzy. That's right. You're not gonna feel well. You're gonna say, this is awful. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's intolerable. And so what you have to do if you wear glasses is mm-hmm. tight, tight spectacles, strap in the back, hold yeah. it tight on the face. Okay. But that's uncomfortable after a while. Yeah. Right. So you have to, so what most, uh, astronauts do, and by the way, most astronauts are requ- need glass zirconic lenses yeah. because they're selecting the best astronaut, yeah. not because they have excellent vision, but they're the best person to be an astronaut. Yeah. So most of them require some optical correction. Yeah. So, and again, most of them wear contact lenses. Yeah. And so contact lenses are good in space. They work, but there's issues with contacts. Yeah. Right. Like, um, there's they, NASA has training videos on contact lenses, whatever. And so, um, it's, it's hard to do, uh, yeah. because, uh, well, imagine giving yourself an eye drop. Yeah. Right. How do you give yourself an eye drop? Oh, it's easy. I tilt my head back, squeeze the bottle, the drop falls into my eye. Remember, it's not going to fall. So part of the training is to give yourself an eye drop. What you have to do is you have to put a drop in space. It's a blob. And then they call it docking with the drop. Okay. You have to come at the drop. (laughs) And while you're coming at the drop, the little eddy currents, just the wake of your face coming in the air makes it move a little bit. So it's kind of hard to do. It's a little technique. Yeah. Uh, cleaning a contact lens, taking yeah. out a contact lens. Um, these are all issues and hassles that in space that, that they have to have. So they were saying, you know, what about what about uh, laser vision correction, you know, PRK and LASIK, yeah. and smile in uh, abstract? What do you think? Yeah. And so we uh, looked at it. I was a consultant with them, uh, reviewed. They eventually approved. Yeah. Uh, it so uh, astro- laser vision correction. Astronauts refracted as well now. Yeah. 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 And I guess for, for a point of view of selecting the best, uh, having a bigger pool of people to select from now, if you're refracted, you can still uh, be a pilot in the U.S. That's Navy. right. Yeah. So probably the one of the uh, proudest things I am of kind of this time is um, kind of spearheading the VOD refractive program was just that, um, allowing the standards change to, it used to be like when I was, when I joined, you had to have 2020 unaided vision yeah. in each eye in order to be a pilot yeah. at landing on aircraft carriers. And so that excluded a lot of people. So yeah. the standards changed. Now you still have to be 2020. Yeah. Um, but you could have had refractive surgery with yeah. within certain parameters. And obviously yeah. there's some requirements for it, but within certain parameters. And so people that would never have been able to be a Navy pilot could yeah. now. So I've got, I had numerous letters, phone calls, yeah. uh, people that had wanted to be, that could never have aspired to be, yeah. could now fulfill their, Dream. you know, their dreams. Right? Yeah. 
So it's, it has been enormously powerful in that regard. And not only that, I guess you can refract your 2020 pilots to 2012 and make them even better pilots, yeah? yeah. That's right. You yeah. know, kind of the, the, the concept of supervision, yeah. which we looked at and, and studied. And that was going back to that study we talked about earlier, yeah. right? Going back to that. So, you know, getting pilots, doing the best procedures to get pilots, really to get everybody, right? Yeah. So I say pilots because we all understand how critical their vision right. requirements are. But for everybody, um, to get them, you know, 2020 or better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To get to at their best potential, I That's guess. Right. Yeah. So uh, moving on now, um, advice for life. And I think you mentioned someone called Bob Hickey gave you a good piece of advice <laughs> at your squadron. Yeah. So the uh, I'm new. I finished uh, pilot training, wings. I finished training, which is years. I finished training in F-14s. Yeah. So now I'm a designated F-14 pilot. Yeah. Then you go to a squadron. Fleet yeah. squadron, and uh, I was with a fighter squadron too. And my first uh, uh, commanding officer uh, was uh, uh, Bob Hickey. Yeah, you know, Commander Bob Hickey. His call sign is Burner. Yeah. Burner, Burner Bob. Yeah, and um, he got the whole squadron together. And there's you know 14 pilots, 14 or so uh, uh, Rios, uh, and there's hundreds of maintenance. So yeah. he got everybody together, and he had a motto that was kind of the squadron motto, and it was. If you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. Yeah. So think about what you're doing. Think about think about what you're doing. If you're not having fun, you know, make it fun. Yeah. Right? Uh, make it fun. Do do something that, to make it fun. If you're not having fun, you're not doing it. So it's it's kind of a life philosophy. Yeah. Right. In um, uh, you should you know life is short. Yeah. Right. Life is short. Enjoy it. Kind of yeah. In that in that regard, if it's you know you should if you're not doing you know. You get, you've got to do it right, and you've got to have fun doing it. Yeah, good, good advice there. Um, any thought? It's a difficult one, but any thoughts on the meaning of life? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I would say you know life is short. Um, look at how uh, look at how you can contribute to society. I think yeah. there's a there's a lack of you know awareness of how we fit into society. There's, yeah. Uh, there's more tendency of uh, me, yeah. not us together. And so I would say, if anything, you know, look at look at society and how you can benefit society, how you can how we can advance society, yeah. how we can make things better uh, for everybody. Yeah. Have you got any advice for a young person at the start of their career, whether it's aviation or medicine or any other career? Really, any advice for their future career and life to take with them? Well, I, you know, the something I've told my kids, um, and where you end up getting to in life is ten uh, percent what you were born with, what you got inherently, and yeah. and I said everybody's got full ten percent. Everybody's got ten percent of that, that full ten percent. It's really ninety percent what you do with it, mm-hmm. um, and so it's the work, it's the effort, it's the waking up early, it's the drive, it's the motivation. Because, you know, it's not going to be handed to you. Where you get to, to aspire to your goals is going to require that work, that that effort, that really, uh, that diligence. So I would say, you know, the, a career in medicine, a career in aviation, those are fantastic fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, those are fantastic fields to go in. Um, but to get there, it's, you know, there's, there's effort. Now, uh, that effort can be fun. Yeah. Right? And if you're not having fun, you're not doing something right in that effort. That's right. So I would say those two things, those yeah. two philosophies, uh, work and effort, uh, put that in yeah. and have fun doing it. 
That's right. Because I guess if you know, and if you're not enjoying, you got to do something to make it fun and enjoy your career. Right. Because as you say, life is very short. Yeah, so. yeah. If yeah, if you're if you're doing something and you're not having fun doing it, you know, think different. Yeah, think different. Yeah. How you can make it fun or do something different. Yeah, change pathways. But yeah, that's good advice there. Yeah, thanks. Okay, well, I, I can't end the podcast without going back to the going back to the Top Gun movie again. Uh, so I think we see in the movie that the place to relax and unwind is the Miramar Officer Social Club. Is that is that the the play, is, is that a thing where they where they saying you got that loving feeling in the movie? Was that was that a thing? Was that a place to go to to relax and unwind in real life? It was the Miramar Officers Club was it was really the place. It yeah. was the place to go. It was the, the it was the hot spot really in San Diego. Yeah. yeah. It was the place to go. I I uh, met my wife at an officers club. Not that yeah. one, but I met my wife at an officers club. And yeah. that, that made it in the movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, the I would say that was the place. Uh, there, I don't recall any kind of singing like that. Yeah. But it was really the place to to gather. Uh, there was a, a a room in the Miramar Officers Club, so it's a it's big big area. There's a room in it, a lot of bars, whatever. There's a room in it called the Waxoff Room, W O X O F. Yeah. And if any aviators know, that's the symbol for weather the weather condition of zero visibility, yeah. zero ceiling. In other words, you can't fly. Yeah. So that was a room I, that, that collectively. Well, if you can't fly, this is the room to go to. This, yeah. This this bar, this part of Miramar. So it was definitely real. It was popular. It was the place to be. Yeah. And I think uh, looking at the two movies as well, Top Gun, sequel Maverick, the flying scenes, are they realistic? Are we, uh, uh, does it give a good feeling of what it's like being a fighter pilot? The, so the second movie, the second movie um, everything that happens on the ground is, is pretty much Hollywood, but the, what, it, what it did do a good job of is showing the the physical demands and the stress of flying, yeah. right, which are very intense, so yeah. it, especially air combat. So it did a good job of showing that, that physically demanding aspect of flying, yeah. which is, again, in, in air combat, it's very physically demanding. Yeah. You're not sitting and saying, oh, it's not like a video game. It's yeah. physically very intense, mentally very intense, yeah. and especially physically. And it shows that. Yeah. It does a better job showing that. Flying. Good, yeah. I guess to round off the podcast, in the movie, we see that they all have all the pilots have call signs like Maverick, Goose, Jester, Viper, Iceman. Um, they often have call signs in real life. Yeah, that's how we talk to each other. Yeah, it was all call signs. Yeah. And how do people get their call signs? You know, it's it's uh, it's kind of an interesting kind of folklore kind of thing. But um, it, you generally get a call sign assigned in a flight training, and it's your peers. Yeah. Your peers give you a call sign. Yeah, and so it's a variety of different things, and if you don't like it, it normally sticks. Yeah, uh, yeah. but you get it. It's kind of an evolved kind of thing, and by the time you're uh, in the F-14 squadron, you've had a call sign for yeah. years. Yeah, whatever. So, um, and that's all we knew. That's how we called each other. So yeah. that's our wives. You know, uh, would call each other by call signs. They didn't even know the last. <laughs> What's that guy's last name? Yeah. What's Rabbit's last name? Yeah. Because they didn't even know. What's his first name? He's just called Rabbit. Yeah. And the wife of Rabbit. Yeah. And what was your call sign? My call sign was Legs. And are we allowed to find out why you got that call sign, or is it classified? I think that, I only disclose that over a, a drink yeah. at the Miramar Officers Club. Okay. So. Uh, well, uh, I guess we'll have to draw the podcast to a close there. Thanks for listening in. And uh, 
is there an officers club near here we can uh, go to get that beer or <laughs> I, the nearest officers club is probably a, a long flight way away, away. so uh, uh, it's a way away from actually finding out the, the story behind legs well anyway thanks very much Steve it's been a pleasure to meet you and I love hearing about your story to talk and we could go on for hours but uh, I guess we'll have to end there but thanks for listening in everyone uh, I will have a hopefully uh, another podcast again soon for you but thanks very much Steve you're welcome Peter thank you Thank you for joining us today at this Bayer-funded On The Horizon podcast. And we hope you'll join us again for the next episode. Until then, goodbye.